Father, we do pray just what we sang, that we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, that we would uh, be uh, challenged and encouraged and built up and taught, instructed and comforted by the Holy Spirit of God through the revealed Word of God. So would you help us? Would you uh, remove inability and blindness to see and and ears that are closed off to hear and minds that are darkened so that we might comprehend what you have for us from your word. Speak to us not with man's wisdom, but from your revealed word through the Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Um, today is a, an interesting Sunday. First, it's the, it's the first uh, Sunday in February, so hallelujah. Um, the groundhog, which is apparently a only semi-relatable or a reliable, excuse me, meteorologist, did not see his shadow, which tells us that spring is coming soon, to which I say amen. Um, anyone who tells me that winter is ending, I'm like, preach that. Um, so that's good, whether it comes from a rodent or the guy on TV, probably about the same level of accuracy. Um, it happens to be Super Bowl Sunday, so for those of you who are football fans, and I really love the commercials that like can't use the term Super Bowl, so they talk about getting ready for the big game. All they're talking about is buying a lot of chips, and uh, I plan on eating many of them this afternoon myself. Also, the last thing that's interesting about today is that apparently the date is a palindrome that only shows up, so all you math nerds are like, palindrome, I remember that word. Um, that only shows up every like 900 years, 0202-2020, like February 2nd, 2020. So there you go. Here's all these interesting facts about today, and really none of them matter. Um, uh, but it's interesting the ways in which we try to add like value to things, right? Uh, and for us today, uh, the, the most valuable thing I think we can do, and I don't want to overstate the case, but I think the most valuable thing we can do today is to, is to sit together, to, to worship as we've, as we've begun, to open God's Word and say, God, what do you have for us today? Because games come and go and seasons come and go, and yet every day we are faced with the same challenges and trials and temptations all the time, no matter the season, no matter what's going on around us, and what we need is God's help. And so let's go to, we're in the Gospel of Luke. You can go to turn there to Luke 4. Um, if you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up. Someone can hand one to you. Um, a lot of it will be on the screen as well. And as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Um, anyone in the room enjoy camping? You enjoy being outdoors. You would consider yourself not a city person, okay? There's a few of you. That's good. How many of you are the opposite side? You're like, camping, there's a reason we invented indoor plumbing, right? There's a few, a few other people that are like, well, yeah, duh, Right? We love, our family, we, we enjoy camping. I love the challenge of it. Um, I like the challenge of it with our kids. Our kids are 13 to 5, and it's, it's fun to, like, make them uncomfortable, um, to rely on themselves, to, um, to, to do things together like that. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we were on, a, on a, a sabbatical, and we went, uh, did a road trip out to the Pacific Northwest. We literally stayed kind of in the Olympic National Forest area and did some hiking and um, like literally stood on the, the edge of the continent and waved at Japan, you know, like that was, that's, it was fun. On our way back, we went through Glacier National Park, 
If you've been to Glacier, it's awesome. You should go there. Thanks, Montana. It's beautiful. Like Western Montana. <laughs> Eastern Montana looks like North Dakota. So it's, it's like, eh. But uh, went to Glacier. And while we were there, we decided, let's try this hike. It was to a place called Avalanche Lake. It's about a five-mile moderate hike. I don't know if anyone's ever hiked that one. Um, the first part of it is like a really uh, simple man-made path, kind of half-mile little loop that goes from parking lot and around. But halfway through, you see a little sign. It says Avalanche Lake, 2.4 miles that way. And you're like, we could do that. I mean, 2.4 miles isn't that far, right? Remember, we have tiny people. This is two years ago. So our littlest ones were in packs. We carried them, except for Lucy, my uh, now six-year-old, like hoofed the whole first half herself. She was all, you know, ready to go. But, but we, we decided, you know what, we're going to do this. We had, we had prepped, we had been out and hiked for, for a number of weeks already at, at different things, and we had water, and we had snacks, and there were enough people on the trail, we weren't going to get eaten by a bear. We thought, okay, this is going to be great. We set out to do it. And about partway through, uh, the landscape changes. It goes from going along this creek, and you can see all this stuff, to just kind of being buried under these massive trees. And the, it gets a little darker. You can't really see the landscape around you. I mean, you, right around you, yes, but beyond that, you're just in this dense nowhere. And you can imagine about halfway in, the people coming towards you were like, it's not that far. You're almost there. And about 10 minutes later, you're like, that guy's a liar. And it, that's, that's how you feel. And, and our kids are going like, okay, I know we're all in this you know, family outdoor adventure thing, but like, are, are we... Are we close? And Nora, who I asked her if I could talk about this, she was leaking out of her mouth. She was six at the time, right? And she's going like, I'm tired. <laughs> My legs hurt. Are we, are we close? Are we there yet? You know, good kid response. And it wasn't long before we didn't even get all the way to the lake. We started to descend down towards the lake basin and the, the trees get a little smaller and the views, you start to see a little further. You can start to see the sides of the cliffs where you are and unsolicited what spills out of Nora's mouth as we come into this, not even the whole clearing, but a little bit of the clearing, wow, th- that was totally worth it. Which I think is fascinating. It was like the highlight of my entire year was that phrase, that was totally worth it. Where before it was like this challenge and this hardship, and it was, and the, the walk back was fun. But, <laughs> but in that moment, there was some perspective gained. Now, I don't know what it's like for you. Maybe you can relate to part of that idea of of taking on a challenging endeavor or being out in the the wilderness, you know, surviving. And not that this was climbing Mount Everest or living in the wild, but, but you get the idea, right? That you can think of a time when you were physically challenged or emotionally and mentally challenged to, to persevere. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, we find Jesus in the wilderness. And we're not talking about like this beautiful, old-growth, forest, glacier-fed lake kind of wilderness. We're talking dry, arid, desert, lonely kind of wilderness. So as you think about that, that's where kind of the picture of where we're at. And so let's read our text, and then we'll continue what, um, what the Lord has for us this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 of Luke, chapter 4. And Jesus, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. May it bear fruit uh, in us. Amen. Now, last week, the section just before this, we read about Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. And following that baptism, Luke gives us a genealogy, tracing the human line of Jesus all the way back to Adam, reminding us that although Jesus is the true Son of God, He is also fully and truly human. And then in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Luke says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, save that idea, is led by that Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days without food to be tempted by Satan. Here, when Jesus is tired, when he's hungry, he's vulnerable, he's alone, Satan, the devil, our enemy, our adversary as well, comes to tempt him and and move Jesus off of his mission and his purpose, enticing him to sin against God. And this is when temptation seems heaviest for us, right? Not when we're strongest and most confident. We'll we'll sing uh, one of my favorite uh, hymns, one of my favorite songs today as we leave, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we'll leave here going like, yeah, right? And five minutes out the door, we're like, "I, I feel good. I'm strong right now. It'll be like at one in the morning. Or it'll be when you've been laboring over a project for a long time and not making progress. Or you feel lonely or rejected or alone or tired or, or spread thin. When you're hungry, right? When you feel lonely and beat up. That's when the temptations that we face seem the hardest. Seem the hardest to resist. And in part because Satan's not a dummy. He's a master strategist. He's been studying the human condition from Adam. And so he seems to bring the temptation when the defenses are the weakest. That's when he seems to swing with all of his power and uses his most persuasive arguments to try to convince us of his twisted idea of truth. And that's what we see here. It's when Jesus is tempted. He's tired. And in this temptation, what we see is he doesn't fail. Where the rest of us would fail... Jesus doesn't. He overcomes those temptations leveled at him. And this is good for us because we recognize, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we are weak. And the good thing is he is not. And so that we who are in Christ, we who are weak, who are in Christ who is not weak, are now empowered in his power and in his life to flee from temptation, to fight sin, to stand up under that temptation by the power of the Spirit that is also at work in us. So we'll get into that. So as I'm understanding, as we're reading through this text, and there's a fair amount to cover this morning, um, here's how I broke it down to help me understand what's going on here. 
We see the strategy of Satan, our enemy, how our enemy works to tempt us, to convince us to not believe what God has said. We see the supremacy of God's spirit, specifically the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, according to Ephesians chapter 6. And we see a savior who sympathizes with us, who knows our weakness, who knows our temptation and does not fail so that we might find in him all we need to help us. So let's look at these different components to try to help us kind of pick apart this text. First, let's look at the strategy of Satan, our enemy. I think it's plausible that Satan knows who Jesus is here. I don't think he's just like, hey, there's a random guy, I'm going to tempt him. I think he knows what he's getting into. And that's unique and that's interesting. Because one of the first things that rose to the surface when we were talking about this text this week was like, does he really think he's got a chance? Like, does he realize who he's talking to? Maybe you thought that when you read this passage, like, come on, this guy's not, no, not, not even close. But somehow, Satan, in his arrogance, thinks, I can do that. And I don't think it's because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Surely, somebody told him if he wasn't there himself some one of his minions or whatever, the, the information that came from heaven to Jesus in his baptism, that this is the beloved Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased, certainly Satan knew that. Certainly he heard the promise and the, the proclamation given from the angels to the shepherds on the hillside as to who it was that was born in Bethlehem. And I think Satan, as arrogant and malicious as he is, says, I've done this before. It worked with Adam in the garden, which was perfect. There wasn't a problem. There wasn't sin there. I could convince him so I can convince this guy. I coerced Adam and Eve to sin. Surely I can take on Jesus. And Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus lines up with what we see in Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. But starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, here's what we read. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God actually say you should not eat of, the tr- of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Stop. Did you notice Satan's question? He twi- his first question is already twisted. Well, did God say you couldn't eat anything? Well, no, God didn't say that. And then did you catch Eve's answer? No, God, God said we could eat from the trees, just not this tree, and we, we can't even touch that one. What's interesting is if you go back to the instruction that God gives Adam and Eve, he never says don't touch it. Now, it might be wise that if I'm trying not to eat something to not touch it, right? It's like don't keep the chips in view if you don't want to eat the chips, Right? Any parents in the room hide candy from their kids? Anybody? Just us? Okay, right? Why? Out of sight, out of mind. So there's this idea here that there might be wisdom in even and, and Adam saying, well, you know what, we're not even going to just touch it. Just, we'll just be safe. But God never said that. They're adding commands <laughs> to God. Then the serpent says this, you will not surely die. So now he's just flat out lying. For, you, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food 
that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Basically, they made themselves leaf underwear. In case anyone in the room was wondering what a loincloth is, there you go. They're covering their nakedness with what they had available. So the serpent opens with a series of twisted questions, offers a faulty promise, and then when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, what does your stomach do when you're hungry? You can answer. It growls, right? It tells you. It it says, feed me. (laughs) Right? Food satisfies that need of the body. And God has provided for them from the rest of the garden. Why would he keep this particular provision from them? Genesis says it was a delight to the eyes. It looked good. It was worth wanting. Why would you not want that? How can it be bad when it looks so good? And beyond that, what would be so bad about adding this fruit to our supply? I mean, who would even know? We chop up a little bit, throw it in with the fruit salad. Who would know? Right? And it, is, it, would be, it was desired to make one wise. The faulty promise was that it would make them like God, and it did, but not in the way that they thought. What they failed to remember is they were already created in the image of God. God had already put his stamp on them. And here they were thinking in a twisted, they were tempted to think, well, God should want to provide this added benefit to us. Shouldn't he? So Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate, and the rest is history. We find ourselves here. And Luke seems to draw this parallel from the temptation that Satan leverages against Adam and Eve to the, in the garden to this temptation here in Luke 4. Satan seems to be using a uh, go-with-what-works mentality, right? If it's working, don't change a thing. And so we have this similar pattern, this full-on attack on Jesus, leveling these same things of the, the desire and lust of the eyes, or the flesh, excuse me, the desire and the lust of the eyes, and pride. We have the same thing here. Uh, here's, here's what Satan seems to level against Jesus in, in, with more specifics. Satan tempts to, Jesus to question God's providential care, trying to convince him that, that Jesus can, can satisfy his own needs. God surely is leaving you hungry, so you should just take care of it yourself. Satan's tempting Jesus to grasp the temp, uh, temporary earthly power. Hey, You could use this for good. I don't even care. All it's going to take is just one small concession from you, Jesus. Just just one really small thing. No big deal. Just worship me. No big deal. Real small. And the third thing is that Satan tempts Jesus to presume upon God's promises. Looking at the Father, not with a sense of humble confidence that he will be faithful to his word, but with arrogant expectation, demanding that God will act according to our timing, not his. So we're going to look at each of these strategies um, first. Providential care. Now, maybe you and I aren't fasting and hungry in the wilderness for 40 days. But where are the times and places that you feel most tempted to distrust God's providential care in your life? Maybe it is food. Maybe you have a, a, a hostile relationship with food in your life where you maybe battle with satisfaction and self-control. It's a reality. 
Maybe that's you. Maybe that, that resonates with you. Maybe it's money. Maybe you worry about your finances so much so that you operate not as a careful and humble steward of whatever God has given you, but you either hoard it out of fear and fail to consider the, the generosity and the sacrificial kindness that God is calling you to in his provision, or because out of fear or anxiety or greed of some kind, you seek to like squeeze every last drop, every last penny out of every little thing, including maybe blurring the lines of what is ethical or moral, and just to acquire a little bit more. In either case, distrusting the provision of God. What if you could just turn a few stones into bread, just that little something extra to fill that gap? Maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe it's something else. But the crux of that temptation is this. It's believing the lie that God will fail in his care for me. That somehow God will fail to provide Now, this isn't a backdoor to laziness or an excuse not to work hard. God enables our hands and our minds to work so that we might work in his strength for his glory in all things. And through those means, God often provides for our needs. But it's God who provides every time. What about power? Who wouldn't want a little more influence, a little more say? Which one of you, wherever you work, which one of you hasn't even thought in the back of your mind, you know, if they asked me how to run this place, I have some ideas. They are dang good ideas. If they asked me, if I was in charge, things would be different around here. I won't ask you to raise your hands. There's enough people who are smiling and nodding that, like, you know what I'm talking about. Right? If you had a little more authority at your place of work, don't you think you could do some, some good there? Maybe if it's even positive. It's not all, like, evil overlord kind of mentality. It's just like, I could, I could make a difference here. I could bring about some positive change. But what if obtaining that authority or that influence costs something, not something big, just something really small. See, Satan gives Jesus a glimpse of all the kingdoms of the world and offers him the authority and the rule over all of it and all the glory that would come from ruling over all of it. Now, there's an underlying question here that asks, does Satan actually have the authority to give what he says he can give? That's just an interesting side note. Paul says in Ephesians and in 2 Corinthians that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world. And Jesus himself in John 12 calls him the ruler of this world. And so there is some authority, some power that Satan has in this world to a degree. In fact, Isaiah tells us that the whole reason that Satan, Lucifer, one of the heavenly hosts, one of the reasons... The primary reason that set up this rebellion against God was that Satan wanted to set himself up as the Most High. He wanted to be like the Most High rather than recognizing his position and his place. So it's not to say it isn't real power, it just isn't ultimate 
power. As an aside, it's a beautiful turnaround here in the destruction of Satan and putting him underneath the authority of Christ when Jesus sends out his disciples in the end of Matthew in the Great Commission. He says, actually, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's mine. <laughs> and now I send you. But Satan here says, I'll, I'll give you all the authority. I'll give you the power. You can rule all that you see. You can have them on one condition. All you have to do is worship me. You just have to bow a knee once. Who would know? We have no indication that there's anyone else here with Jesus. He is alone in the desert. It's not going to show up on any report. You can have all of this just for a small fee. Theologian J.C. Ryle says this, The concession was small, the promise was large. Why not, by a little momentary act, obtain an enormous gain? Right? Maybe I can just say, okay, I'll worship you. And then like, but I'm not really going to do it. I'll just tell him that. Right? What gains might we seek to obtain for the nominal fee of our character? The nominal fee of, of integrity or, or honor. Maybe it's an ethical or moral gray area. Maybe we'd see it as a, a victimless crime. Maybe it's just a fraction of a fraction of a cent per transaction. It's not a big deal. Have you been faced with that temptation? Falsely believing that you can trade a small concession for a greater good. That God won't mind this small issue because I'll be able to do so much good with what I get on the back end. The ends justify the means. That's some of what I see happening here. And finally, the third one is presuming upon God. And this one's even trickier than the last one. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and quotes the Bible to him. Talk about arrogant. He quotes from Psalm 91. And he says to Jesus, throw yourself down from here. Prove to me, prove to everyone else that you really are the Son of God. Don't you trust the Scriptures, Jesus? Psalm 91 says, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Even the angels will bear you up and protect you. Prove it. And, and don't we want to be men and women of faith? Right? When God's Word says in Matthew 7, when Jesus himself says, ask Ask of me and you will receive. Don't we want to be people who ask in faith, believing that he'll answer? Believing that he'll keep his promise? When James 1 commends us and commands us to pray and ask in faith without doubt, don't we want to do that? So how do we reconcile trusting the promises of God in faith versus presuming upon God sinfully? This is why this is tricky. But I think it's easier to see here that presuming upon God takes the promise of God and either pulls it out of its context or twists it. It's like reading uh, Jesus' words in Luke 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, where Jesus is talking about forgiveness and how this works with one another. And he says, give and it will be given to you. Okay, it's taking those and going, okay, God, I've been nice. I'm a, I'm a generally generous person. I give to my church. I volunteer in the nursery. I sponsor a child overseas, God. I pray just about every day. I'm kind to my neighbors. I, I drive a, a, a meager car. It's a Ford. It's fine, right? Why can't I get ahead financially? 
Why, why do I need to replace another appliance? Why do I keep getting passed over the promo- for the promotion? Why do I get cancer, God? Why? It's this presuming upon God where we treat the promises of God like karma, a this for that, rather than unmerited grace for us. As if God owes us, we ask him to prove his goodness to us in our circumstance. And that's Satan's strategy here with Jesus. And we face these same temptations ourselves, don't we? He seeks to undermine the glory of God and destroy us in the process. Disbelief or unbelief in God's providential care of us, attempting to gain power and influence for ourselves through uh, worldly or underhanded means, and presuming upon God, treating him as a vending machine, rather than approaching him with humility. These all amount to nothing short of rebellion. And to quote J.C. Ryle again in his commentary on this, he says, let's just not be ignorant of Satan's devices. This is the strategy of our enemy to destroy us. So lest we spend too much time talking about the bad guy, let's look at Jesus' responses. Where Adam failed, Jesus will not because, and specifically because, he wields with authority and with power, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to counteract, to cut down the lies that are being leveled at him. Tempted to question God's providence, Satan says, turn these stones into bread. Just take care of it yourself. Maybe God's forgotten you out here in the desert, Jesus. And Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Israel is being called to remember, hey, do you remember how God provided for you while you were wandering around in the wilderness, that you were hungry, and God provided for you bread that fell from the sky? Do you remember that, Israel? And in fact, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, and he and the Lord humbled you, get this, he let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They were in the wilderness because they failed to believe God and trust God. And God fed them, yes, because he's merciful to them and because he's kind and generous. And he says, you are hungry. Let me feed you nothing fancy. It's bread, but it's enough for you. But more than just to care for them, he fed them to remind them that he alone is the one who can provide for their every need. And then what they needed more than food was to trust in his promise, to trust in the word that was given to them. Satan says, you can satisfy your hunger here. And Jesus responds basically saying, no, God alone satisfies my hunger. He provides for our physical needs. He has spoken his word to satisfy our souls. Tempted with temporary power. Satan says, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you all the glory and the authority. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus responds from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, People are reminded, remember, it was, it was God who brought you out of Egypt. You were slaves for generations. It was God who brought you out of bondage and slavery. It was God who, who made you 
wealthy as you left slavery. It was God who opened up the Red Sea so that you could escape the army that was, oh yeah, coming to kill you. It was God who provided you bread in the wilderness. It's God who has brought you now to the cusp, to the edge, the border of the land that I've promised you. God's done this. He rescued you. It's the Lord you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, for the Lord your God in the midst of you, Deuteronomy 6 says, is a jealous God. Satan says, I have this authority. I can give it to you. You just have to worship me. It's just a small thing. And Jesus responds with, no, actually there's one God and you're not him. The Lord is the only one worthy of worship. And then tempted to presume upon God, verses 9 through 11, Satan says, if you are the son of God, prove it. I'm going to quote the Bible at you. If you throw yourself down, the angels will come and bury you up. You won't even get hurt. Jesus responds, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That comes from Deuteronomy 6 as well. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you shall not put your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Side note, what's up with Massa? In Exodus 17, the, the people are, are, have gone through all of this, uh, come out of slavery, they're on the edge, the cusp of entering the promised land. And they get there, and because it's arid and dry, they are thirsty. And Exodus 17 says the people were grumbling. They grumbled. And the Lord in his mercy told Moses, take your staff, strike this rock, and water came gushing out of the rock, enough to satisfy the people. And verse 7 says, they called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa kind of translates or transliterates as temptation or test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Do Do my current circumstances tempt me to think that God has left me? Do my current circumstances tempt me to think that God is untrustworthy? Is the Lord among us or not? Satan says, prove that you're the son of God by testing God's promise. And Jesus says, don't test God as if he's untrustworthy. Don't assume that he's untrustworthy. Our confidence in God's promise is not seen in our circumstance, but in God's character. I'll say that again. Our confidence in God's promise is not seen in our circumstance, but in God's character. So Jesus levels all the temptations of Satan by wielding this, the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, leveraging truth to take down lies, to correct faulty thinking, to to break down and dismiss half-truths and literally propaganda. Jesus shows the supremacy of the word of God by the power of the spirit, silencing the temptation and lies of the devil. And in fact, as Luke tells us, when uh, Satan was done, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him. It says until an opportune time, we'll see him bring, uh, come back later and bring the heat. But here's the good news for us. When Satan brings the war to us, it's one thing to read, okay, so he tempted and went after Jesus, Jesus won. That's good. Jesus is always the hero. Amen? 
But we also know that the enemy then brings his war to us. And when he tempts us, there's a beautiful reality that we are not alone. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It'll be on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest. He's come down to us and tells us to hold fast our confession. Hold on to this truth. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our Savior sympathizes with us. He knows the temptations that are used against us. He knows the ways in which we are weak, the things that entice us. And part of what Hebrews is saying, as it kind of connects back to what we're seeing in Luke 4, is that every temptation that you and I will face will be found somewhere in the temptations of Jesus. Now, we could argue about specifics. Jesus did not have access to a smartphone. He did not have uh, images at the, at the fingertips like we do. He may not have had access to uh, insider trading information by which to get rich quick. He, he's, his temptations in the specifics, in the first century Near East are going to be slightly different than the, than the pragmatics and the specifics of the temptations you and I might face every day. But make no mistake, they are the same things at their core. They're just leveled in different ways. They all fall within these categories of distrusting God's providential care of us or compromising um, character and God's word for the sake of something temporary, a temporary power or temporary control or presuming upon God testing his character and saying, no, you've you got to prove to me that you're, you're good. Putting our circumstances against God's character and then attempting to sit in judgment over God. All of our temptations and all of our sins fall underneath this and Jesus, was, they were all leveled at him. He was tempted as we are and he does not fail. He, he knows us. He knows we are weak. He's felt our weakness himself and by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God overcomes the attack and temptation of our enemy. And the beautiful thing for us is that we who are in Christ Jesus are hidden in Christ. That we are filled with the same Spirit that has been given and we've been given the same Word with which to counter the lies of our enemy. So what do we do with the temptation in the moment? That's great up here. But as we talked about when we started, it's when we feel stretched and thin and hungry and weak and burdened and beat up and vulnerable. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus, our great high priest, who, is, who sympathizes, he is not unable... So he's able, double negative, to sympathize with our weakness, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. Where do we go? We, we don't find the strength within ourselves and, and bootstrap ourselves to victory over temptation and sin. We don't. We don't willpower our way to, to, to victory over temptation and sin. Hebrews says, he's the victorious one. So where do we run? There. We go together to the throne of grace that we so desperately need. He offers mercy and help. We might receive mercy and find grace to help us. Help to what? 1 Corinthians 6. Help to flee temptation. So when, it's, when it comes, by his help, because of his grace and mercy at work in us, we can run the other way. This is bad for me. I'm leaving. Right? We, we can have help to fight against the desires of sin that remain. Galatians chapter 5. We can look at those things and say, no, those are worthless things. And we can stand against them. We, we need help to remember and help to wield this truth rightly. So that we have this word hidden in our heart that we might not sin against God and so that we might be able to leverage it so when the lie sounds plausible, we go, but I know that's not true about God's character. Because his word tells me, right? Christ, who is our high priest, he knows our weaknesses. He intercedes for us. He strengthens us by the spirit of God. He's at work in us. Maybe you just need to hear this this morning. That the Spirit of God is at work in you if you're a follower of Jesus. That the Spirit of God is available to you right now and in your weakest moment and in your strongest moment to do this. To help. To drive us to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and grace where we need it. Even though we may be many times weak, He is not weak. It's true. Life is often hard, and we don't pretend to not be weak. I am a firm non-believer in fake it till you make it. We don't pretend that. Our desire, when it comes to our own brokenness and temptation, is to go together to the throne to receive grace that we so desperately need. We want to go together we desire as pastors and as a church to walk alongside each other in pursuit of the grace that we so desperately need and we can only find in one place so that in Christ we are shown mercy. We're empowered. We're given strength by grace to flee, to fight, to stand up under temptation by the power of the Spirit that is at work in us. And my prayer for myself and for us is that we would find ourselves close to our sympathizing Savior. Not out of shame to hide ourselves, but out of need to go to Him so that we might find all the mercy and the grace that we need. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that You would do just that. That You'd free us from the bondage to shame and guilt so that we could acknowledge with humility, our own brokenness. Because in that, we see our, when we see our need, we see the solution that you offer to welcome the broken and the needy and the wounded and the hurt 
You offer mercy to help. Father, for those of us who are feeling stretched thin, who are feeling beat up, wounded, weak, vulnerable, would you meet us with your grace, the reminder of your near presence with us always, that you will not and have not forsaken and leave us. Father, for those of us who have worry and anxiety about your provision, intangible means even, would you remind us and encourage us, provide for what we need according to your word and help us to trust you and to see your goodness and be filled with gratitude for your kind provision in whatever way you see fit. Father, for the, for the ways in which we try to gather for ourselves and do it for ourselves and create for ourselves while pushing you away, would you forgive us? Would you stir our dependence on you so that when we work, when we put our hands and our minds to work, it would be not just for our glory, it would be for your glory and for our joy. And would you help us, Spirit of God, to know more deeply. Plant your word, as we sang earlier, down deep in us that it would bear fruit so that with your word we might be able to combat the lies of our enemy who only seeks to destroy us, who offers nothing but empty, unfulfilling promises. But you are sure. Would you encourage us as we come to the table remembering the great mercy of God on display in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.